the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints while you're working on your comparisons. We'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, conference is over, and uh, we got the first episode up, and now next episode uh, talking about the conference. Uh, I'm excited to go through some stuff here today. Yeah, for sure. Um, for those that weren't able to attend it, uh, you might have even detected in our previous <laughs> previous recording that uh, there, there were some ups and downs. I'm sure we'll be going through those and try to relay some of those for the for the listeners. But before we get into all that, why don't you uh, take us on a tour of the world? Yeah, and I have to tell you, too, before I start this one, had a really nice email from a listener who is another non-fingerprint examiner. He's an attorney. Oh, cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I'm not going to say his name, but he's down in, in Arizona. Oh, okay. He listens to the podcast on his long drives uh, from Phoenix to when he's visiting clients in, in the prison system down in Florence. These are all towns that make sense to you, of course, Eric, and so you know what that drive is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, Florence is a is a special wide spot in the road yeah. with a prison. <laughs> yes, and I've testified there. I've actually been there. I have testified there. Yes, and uh, he listened. He was listening to our uh, one of our more recent podcasts, the one that compared the different disciplines, handwriting and and mm. fingerprints and so forth. He really enjoyed that episode, and that was really nice to hear. But he mentioned specifically that he really likes the intro, which is the where in the world that we've been doing. <laughs> and he specifically called that out. So I thought that was kind of nice to hear because, and he may not be aware that you know we do change our intros and our little gimmicks from time to time and usually we'll change right around the uh the last iai conference although i think we both agreed that we didn't do enough episodes this year and we might continue hmm. with this for a little bit longer i'm not sure if we've ever talked about this but uh you know we've been we kind of been doing something like this since almost the beginning of this kind of like a weird little game intro did I ever tell you why I suggested that? Why we started doing this in the first place? No, no, I don't know the origin of this. So uh, back when we started this, like 10 years ago, I had been listening to a podcast about pub quiz trivia. Mm. It was a pub quiz team out of San Francisco, and they decided to start a podcast and just sharing weird facts with each other. And it was called Good Job Brain, like what you would tell your brain if it remembered something to help you win at pub, uh, you know, quiz trivia. Uh, I don't think they've, they're around anymore. I think they kind of closed up shop a number of years ago, but uh, they, they do little games uh, throughout the episode. And, and I liked that show and thought, Hey, we can do little games too. And, and anyway, that's the origin of that. Yeah, that's cool. No, I didn't know that. And I'm, I think it's great. We outlasted them. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, for our where in the world. So, this country is the 11th largest population in the world. Doesn't quite make the top 10, gets real close to it. Another okay. interesting fact about this country is that half of the zippers in the world are made here. Now, that's like a real trivia-type question. Like, where are half of the, the zippers in the world made? And in fact, if you check your zipper, it's a 50% chance that you have the initials YKK on that zipper, and they were made in this country. And those are the initials of the man manufacturer. I'm not imagining you know, hundreds of people across the world staring at their crotches right now. So, okay. <laughs> and then checking their zipper. <laughs> right. 
I, where's that room shot? <laughs> All right, now these next ones probably get a little easier. Uh, it is polite, in fact, uh, it'd be rather impolite not to remove your shoes when you enter someone's house in this country. This country is home to the origin of a series of movies about a giant flying turtle from outer space who is friend to all children. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't know, I, I know that know one. I mean, that's, that's sure. yeah, exactly. Okay, that one just gives it away. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, they have some of the most bizarre vending machines in the world. There's one vending machine for every 24 people in the country. You can get everything from this is true: live rhinoceros beetles, fresh eggs, dog wigs, wigs for your dog, floral arrangements octopus, ramen, and yes, girls' panties. Well, then we have to be in Japan. <laughs> that we are. Uh, I figured wow. the Gamera one would get a, a chuckle out of you. Gamera is the flying giant turtle from space for those that don't know who Gamera Yes, and now thank you very much. I've got the damn theme song going through my head. Yes. It's one of the most earworthy <laughs> songs of all time. Yes, yes, yes. Friend to all children. Friend to all children, except for the first movie. I'm not sure. <laughs> he was more of a destructive. He was more of the bad guy in the, in the first one, kind of like Godzilla, you know, converted to good guy over time. But they have more kaiju per square mile in Japan than any other country. Hey, every every country has a monster, as <laughs> uh, Mystery Science Theater taught us. Yeah, true. All right, uh, what you got for me, sir? Well, so first off, I uh, want to thank some new patrons uh, that have joined us contributing at patreon.com. That'd be Jeremy, Nat, and Don. Thank you guys for joining the club and and being a part of uh, our crew here. I really appreciate it. And because of folks like you, we were able to uh, host a booth at the IAI again this year. Man, we... we Surpassed even last year at, I think, for traffic and number of sales of Double Loop Podcast merchandise. We had mugs, we got t-shirts, and we had uh, tote bags and and all sorts of stuff. And some new designs that uh, will shortly be coming to our website. We're changing up our, our printing, t-shirt printing uh, vendor. And once that's ready, then it'll be up on the website. You'll be able to see all the, the new stuff. For all the Swifties out there, we've got like a Taylor Swift-themed fingerprint uh, shirt. It had to be explained to me. It, it, me too. Uh, but that, that's fine. We like sold out of that one, so I don't care. <laughs> no, we, I mean, yeah, we sold out of that one, I think, first. Uh, and again, just everyone yeah. who knew Taylor Swift songs, they were so excited. They it instantly had to buy it. They were over the moon for, for that shirt. Exactly. I didn't get it. Hey, you know, latch our, uh, our our hitch onto that star, right? And uh, you know, we had a, you know, the 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 classic from last year of of the the tip T-shirt for anyone who has been to our website and seen that that sold out again. I'm pretty sure. And then a, a nice one is I love it. it. Says classically trained. It's got a, a drawing of a, a fingerprint magnifier, you know, on the shirt. That was also a really popular one for for folks that didn't want the rude tip T-shirt or the Taylor Swift themed t-shirts, you know, we try to cover all the bases. But to, like I said, coming soon to the Doublet Podcast website. It was really great. And Rebecca did a fantastic job. And Absolutely. Uh, th thanks to her for manning the booth. And thanks to all the people that, you know, sponsored, paid, bought stuff because it just helps us get another booth next year, bring Rebecca back 
for yet another conference, and we really appreciate her agency, Oakland Police Department, even allowing that. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of work and a lot of standing, and we're we're kind of you know getting used to it now, and have I've got a, a secret file on my phone of even more T-shirt ideas that we can work up for next year. So perfect. Uh, you know, looking forward to seeing even more people in Reno. You know, the conference was, I think it was the, it was close to the biggest ever, like 17, 1800 people there, you know, just outside of DC, you know, nice little facility at in a place called National Harbor, Maryland. And, uh, but speaking of the Harbor, Glenn, uh, you, uh, the Saturday after the conference ended, you were able to take a little boat trip and continue your sailing stories that you get <laughs> to tell us. <laughs> That's true. So, right. So a lot of people chose this conference to not only attend, but stay after. That's that's rare. Most people are way ready to go home by the end of the week. But I was surprised how many people were staying on. So myself and a couple other people. And so it was really nice on Saturday. One of the locals, uh, her name is Mallory McCormick, and she was actually recently voted to the board of directors. So congratulations to Mallory. She and I did a workshop at the conference. Uh, she works for the Secret Service. Uh, she and her husband have a boat and they also have a little farm too where they have horses and so they invited a bunch of us back to their place to go on a boat ride on the Potomac and check out a beach and go into DC and check out the monuments like from the river and that was really cool we got to do that for for the weekend and then stayed at the farmhouse where they have their horses now I didn't the next day but my friend did and uh, Alice White was there with Chris and they rode horses and they uh, they actually did really well and they uh, were able to uh, ride Mallory's horse around their their arena and it was uh, it was a really nice relaxing Saturday and it was nice to really see DC from um from the river you just, I just have never seen it from the river it's a completely different perspective and I even got to uh, drive their boat on the Potomac and oh. I, I gotta say <laughs> it was all good no no problems no no issues but boy it has influenced me to think okay now I know exactly what kind of boat I want and it's not as big as or as mean as their boat, but somewhere in between. And I, I started looking at some uh, this summer at the or their state fair where they have all of our boat sails. So it was a little inspirational. Now I know what kind of boat I would like, like a real, real boat. One that, that leaks a little bit less. <laughs> right, <laughs> correct. Has the, the anchor securely attached. You know, a few things to, <laughs> to check things, you know, check boxes going yes. down the list. Yes. And can go more than, you know, 15 miles an hour in the lake with a small outboard motor. Right. If, if there's if there's a headwind, right, you can still move forward. That's correct. Um, yes, correct. <laughs> right. All right. So that was the, the Saturday after the conference. Let's let's back up a bit and, you know, go all the way back to to the beginning of the conference on Monday, where uh, we, you know, we alluded a little bit to this, uh, you know, in the previous episode. You know, there were some... Um, some presentations given on Monday that, uh, you know, were, were viewed as controversial by some. Yeah, that, that would be putting it mildly. Uh, controversial, is, I think, would be the probably the apt descriptor. And the, the way it started off was, I mean, I'm just going to combine them together. I mean, there were two talks sure. that I would say were fairly critical and 
what I don't like about a lot of critical talks is critical without real solutions, just critical, 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 critical. And they were critical mm. about a number of things. They were critical about OSAC standards, to some extent, SWIGFAST standards, uh, critical about what was perceived as over-documentation, critical of some of the technology coming down the pipe in the field, and even, unfortunately, critical of specific people in the field and specific examiners in the field who are private examiners, some who have PhDs. And, I mean, I, I sat there listening, you know, to, it was almost like three hours. And I just kind of walked away from, from those talks as, well, these were disappointing in the sense that I would like to have had more concrete examples of why not this, but this instead, and let's show you concrete examples of the effectiveness of this. I, I think one of the things that bothers me is when people are very critical of something that they really don't understand. I see this quite a bit. They don't understand it. Sometimes they'll even say, we did a dive on this, or we took a look at this, and here's what we found, but they really didn't. They had an example, or maybe not even that, just they looked at it, and looking at it was a very cursory view without really trying to understand it, without trying to implement it, without seeing the actual effect. That's when I think it bothers me more, because obviously these talks are very influential. A lot of people come, and a lot of people go to go, well, I heard about this new thing. Should I be using it or not? No, no, we took a look at it and we determined, don't do that. But then when it turns out that their look at it wasn't a real look at it and has kind of missed all the other research on it, and particularly those of us that have studied this in great detail, either you know statistical models or quality models or these other things where a lot of data. And we know that these things aren't always perfect, whether it's a standard or a technology or a methodology. We understand that there are limitations, but I hate when these talks go, we looked at it, here's this limitation, that's why we think it's garbage, and the word that I heard used was junk science. And that's where I go, okay, that's, that's actually mischaracterization, uh, complete mischaracterization. But nobody knows any better. And so I, I think what I was frustrated by these two talks was that half the audience really didn't understand some of the background and just kind of sat there going, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, sure, 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 sure. And uh, half the audience, the other half of the audience, knew that there was something more behind this and that there was only a very small percentage of people in the audience who I think either had a personal investment or kind of really knew some of the background. And I guess we'll get into that in a second because that's the second part of this is one of those talks started discussing a case that's in that was going on in Texas. And we'll have to get into this history real fast, but this is not the episode to to take a dive on this. But one of right, those no. right. One of those critical talks was about a case in Texas where one of the presenters was involved, the presenter after them was involved as well. They had differing opinions and full disclosure I was hired to be a mediator by a group in Texas, a, a commission in Texas, to sort of help them, the, the commission, understand what are these two sides saying? What's happening here? Can you help translate this as a technical expert? And unfortunately, I got quite a bit of frag and flack on this as well, even though I thought, well, being a mediator will be quite neutral. Yeah, it turns out it didn't feel that way at all. And... 
my whole position was I wanted these talks to be put off until the commission had come out with a report, which actually will probably come out next month. And it was just unfortunate that we couldn't get the report out in time for the conference. And then there was yet another speaker after all of this who was there to talk about the report, but then couldn't talk about the report because the report wasn't done. So she had to give another case. And so you had the first speaker talking about standards and the next speaker talking about some of those standards and some of the things going on in the field in certain cases and examiners who should or shouldn't be practicing in the field. Then you had another examiner uh, presenter get up there talking about his view on what he did in a certain case. Then you had another person get up there and talk about a report that is forthcoming but it's not available yet. So let's talk about another case. And it all kind of felt like if if you had walked in the room at any point and had not sat through it, all of these presentations, or even if you had, but just didn't know the subtext, it would have felt like, you know, when you get invited to a friend's house and you show up and it's very clear when you've shown up uh, for this dinner party that that couple is in the middle of a fight, like they were just fighting two minutes before you arrived. That's what this felt like. You want to leave? But you kind of want to also see it. There's a little train wreck going on in the background. There's a lot of tension and there's, it's uncomfortable and you're not sure what people are arguing about and everyone's kind of vague. And hell, even in this, right? I've been just saying that presenter. I haven't named any names. I just that presenter and that presenter. So it feels vague, but I guess people are trying to keep it vague for a reason. And I'm keeping it vague until there is this report. Once this report comes out, Eric, you and I can talk about this what's in the report and we probably will but it just feels right. like why why get into all this and a lot of it, it the surprising part was just some of the negativity that simply doesn't have a place at the iai that's supposed to be an educational conference it went from criticism to what felt quite personal to many examiners yeah no i i, I can definitely see how certain examiners or certain groups of examiners would would take some of those cons would take some of those uh, comments personally. Yeah, I think you know over the just the roller coaster of shock, I, I've I've just kind of settled on to disappointment that this is what the IAI educational conference has become. Yeah, and that that's unfortunate. I have seen I've seen really good case studies where there have been differences of opinions or possibly even errors. I've seen those handled very well. I mean, the Mayfield is a wonderful example of how the IAI can offer a platform for people to discuss what happened in this case, right? And when the IAI did that back in 2004, it was fantastic, very well done, and kudos to the people that presented on that, who I, I thought did an amazing job. I also have seen the exact opposite, where it has not been handled well, it does get very personal, and so many of the quote-unquote facts start to change after the fact. It becomes sort of presented in a, um, a skewed way. Uh, it seems very like, mm, well, that's, well, that's, that's a little misleading. That's, well, I didn't, yeah, okay, that's not quite, that's not quite right. Um, and I've seen that, for example, in Scotland when the McKee case was presented there at a conference. And it was presented by those that believed that it was a true identification. And for those in the audience that strongly disagreed, it was one of those very uncomfortable, again, very personal kind of attacks. So I, I would want more Mayfield and less personal weirdness 
that I, I saw it this II. It's just, it's just not necessary. These things can be talked about in a, I think in a, um, an objective, sort of distanced way that people who weren't involved in the case could learn from. Go, why, well, why did this case come out this way? Why did these things happen? Oh, because of this. Okay, well, that makes sense. Right. You know, we don't do that in our agency, so we're not in danger of that. Or, well, we do that in our agency, so we should be aware that that could happen to one of our cases. I mean, that's that's how I look at it, and I didn't I didn't get that walking away from those presentations. Now, did you get any useful no, <laughs> I, I, tidbits? I I'm not sure what I would have learned from from either of those, or what anyone else would have would have learned from those. What yeah. what they could have done to change and improve uh, practices back at their agency. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, concrete. It, it's it's uh, it was all very opinion based, without or, or you know single samples of without you know looking at a large number of how this affects things over a course of a year or you know things like that. It was it's all very specific uh, to a single sample or a single case or a single comparison stuff like that. Yeah. Well. Anyway, moving on. We'll maybe we'll address it. Um, you know, again when the report comes out, we can talk yep. more about that, and maybe we'll revisit some of these ancillary topics. But I'm ready to move on. Apologies for everyone out here that is still thinking and shouting at their their phones of like, just what's going on? <laughs> uh, you know, like like Glenn said, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk in more detail when there's a publicly available report that we can reference and point everybody else to. But uh, so for now, at least wanted to to mention a one of the big subjects of conversation at you know lunches and dinners and bars uh, from at the conference, and then go for you know what was for me uh, or a low point for me at the conference to a high point for me at the conference, Black Box 2022. Yes, yeah that that oh my goodness I I, I was not able to attend unfortunately, and that. That made me the most saddest. That actually was the saddest part of the conference for me was missing that talk because I was teaching. And I miss, even missed the first couple of minutes, but uh, still, I, I, I got I got the good parts. So, so. Um, oh, sorry, can, can we clarify something? There isn't a paper out. There's no paper out published yet. Uh, but the, yes. the FBI has done this in the past where it's basically about to get published they'll they're allowed to present at the conference and you're allowed to take notes about it and discuss it it just is not published yet so if any listeners are catching this now uh, we're in september 2023 it's not out yet but as soon as it is i'm sure we'll probably cover it in much more detail oh we'll do a whole episode about it there's so much in there to to, to cover yeah um I, I only got the the slimmest part of it to jot it down overall you know, I like positive predictive value, negative predictive value. Uh, so uh, first thing is, uh, so both of those numbers can be kind of influenced by the ratio of uh, mated and non-mated samples. Uh, so what they did is they, they normalized both of them to 50% um, ah. in order to compare the PPV and NPV from this new study to the one from 2011. And uh, the positive predictive value, 50, uh, is the same. So it's still, you know, really, really high. Was it 99.8% or thereabouts? I think it's 99.7. Uh, so okay. um, with that, that normalization to 50, you know, affects that slightly. Okay. 
Well, quick reminder for our listeners, right? What what that value is. Yes. That. Oh, good idea. Yeah. So what that means is when an examiner reported an identification in this particular test, one of the participants said it was an identification. They were accurate about the about them coming from the same source, ninety nine point seven percent of the time. It was 99.8 in the other study, so yeah, basically the same number. Very good. Excellent. Well done. Great. All right, so one of the big things that was exciting for me was looking at the false negative rate data. So in this paper, they, they had the subscript calls, so we're going to have to look at the paper to kind of make sure we fully understand what that means. Um, but what they had was that the the false negative rate on calls, I'm assuming that you're meaning you called it an ID or you called it an exclusion, uh, in the 2011 paper was 14%, about 14%. And yeah, that might be a different number than what you're expecting to hear, but it may be that subscript of calls that, uh, that they're measuring in a slightly different way. But regardless, the point I'm trying to make is that is comparing that to now the new study where it dropped from 14% to six. Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. And that's very significant. So then the very next, the slide continued on where, with the examiner that was, you know, one of the authors of the study discussing how, you know, there's no way to tell for sure why this has dropped over time, but uh, it would be reasonable to, um, to think that all of the training and discussions that have gone into the exclusion decision over the past 10, 12 years has had an effect in our field and, you know, really significantly reduced the uh the rate of erroneous exclusions yeah i can i can completely buy that uh, and you know even so far as you know lab policies um uh, affecting you may have had an effect on this and she talked about some of the training that they had had at the fbi and um i yes was sitting in the front row with a stupid grin on my face because i was just so excited to see a topic that I've been passionate about for so long appear to have made an impact uh, in the field. And that's, that's just so exciting. Um, I was, uh, I was walking on clouds for the rest of that day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fantastic. There might've been a shift to either culturally or perhaps even the participants, right? Moving from a more traditional approach one to maybe an approach two, yes. where you might have, you know, this non-ident, not identified does not equal an exclusion necessarily. You know, that change uh, may have happened culturally in the last 10 years as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there was a presentation, another different presentation uh, that someone trying to kind of push back in the other direction. But no, I, I, I <laughs> stand by that, that theory that um, looking and not finding is not enough for an exclusion. You have to find differences. If you've found sufficient differences, then you have an exclusion. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm already thinking about how maybe now with this paper, it's time to kind of move beyond exclusions and have a, a, a focus on, all right, well, what if you look and don't find? Well, what, what do I say then? And in some circumstances, that being support for different source. And, you know, the, the different kind of flavors of that already kind of thinking through what, what next year's presentation, what a presentation next year might be able to touch on since, uh, it seems like a lot of people in the field, at least are ready for that kind of next step. Cause that was one of the things that they saw here, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, the, that 
Well, in the study, it was inconclusive um, with dissimilarities being the least used conclusion mm. uh, for uh, of the, the the five kind of conclusions that they had, and looks like you know that's that's where the next kind of uh, focus of training needs to be. No, very good. Yeah, that's great. Great news. Uh, now. A little bit on the bad news. So first off, another good piece of good news. No erroneous ID was reproduced. No. So okay. uh, with verification, the study still you know, suggests that you know, with the proper verification, you know, the risk of a erroneous ID in our field is very low. However, there were many more erroneous IDs than, than 12 years ago. Hmm. Uh, so last time around, there were, what, six. six? Yes. So this time around, 23. Whoa. And 13 from one dude. Oh. How do you know he's a dude? How do you know? Well, you know what? I Gender neutral dude. I, oh, I okay. use the term. Right. <laughs> no, it, it, and it's, it's uh, who knows? Because, you know, I mean, our field is, is you know, definitely weighted on the female side. But Well, there you um, go. One chick bringing us all down. <laughs> Uh, but you know, it's something that we've talked about. We've seen in some of these other black box studies from other fields and there was some discussion about, okay, you know, what do we do? And it's like, well, you know, we don't know who this person is. They don't know who they are. And there is no way to find that out. The, the agreement that, um, you know, in order to participate, you signed an agreement saying that, you know, they would, you know, destroy any way to connect you to this data. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everyone funding the study and performing the study and participating in the study all signed up for this uh, ahead of time. So we, everyone has to follow what everyone agreed to ahead of time. Sure. Um, so, so we throw out, you said 10, we just, if we do just remove this outlier person, that would right. leave us with 13 though, right? Yes. Yeah. So, which is in line, I mean, with Heidi's study with palm prints. I think she had twelve in that study. It's double, you know, the first one. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. One of the things that was I thought found it was interesting was that they did you know, a question a survey before you start, like always. And one of the questions was, you know, what kind of policy do you have at your agency for how you treat uh, APHIS and non-APHIS comparisons. Mm. Like, do you treat them the same? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, for APHIS comparisons, do you do you require a little bit more correspondence to reach an ID when you use APHIS? Ah, interesting. Ah, great questions. Do you do you do that? But there's no agency policy. How, how might you answer that question? And I want to follow up on this when we talk about it, looking at the paper. But from, I believe what they said was that everyone who made an erroneous ID. Uh, answer that question either that their agency had no policy on this topic or they personally don't make any different differentiation between APHIS and non-APHIS comparisons. Mm. Okay. When we're looking at the numbers that are this small, it's hard to make you know, really big generalizations, but there, to me, it suggested that it may be a correlation kind of thing, right? Where you kind of operate in that kind of agency and that kind of agency also doesn't have the more in-depth training that some other agencies get. And then the lack of the more in-depth training kind of might lead to the higher risk of erroneous ID or some, I'm not sure how causal or, um, you know, correlational it is, but 
uh, I found it very interesting. All right, so some of the other talks, I had three lectures and, you know, booth to, to, to man, but you managed to get to some things. Uh, sounds like, Glenn, you, you missed out on a whole bunch, but... Yeah, unfortunately, I was teaching just about every day or down trying to help Becca for exactly. what I could. So, yeah, I, I actually missed I pretty much everything after Monday. The U.S. Army Crime Lab uh, gave a talk on some of their evaluation results of the uh, likelihood ratio model from Switzerland, the Xena model. Mm -hmm. uh, something you've probably heard Glenn talk about quite a bit. Uh, and I gave a talk on a, a model that Idemia uh, is working on uh, based on you know, work from uh, Cedric Newman. And I consider these things deep dives. When someone says we did a deep dive on, this is a deep dive where you have actual <laughs> generated data uh, that you that you're sharing here. This is a deep dive. <laughs> oh, right, right, for as opposed to some other lectures, right? Right, where a, it was said we did a deep dive, but what that meant was we looked at one or two examples and didn't like it. Right. So yeah, we'll go into more detail about those. Yeah, that, I think that topic at some point down the road. I don't want to kind of get too far into the weeds there, but you know, for for folks that are interested in you know what the future of our field is going to look like and and how a stat model or probabilistic uh, numbers you know may come into play is you know there is progress moving forward uh, in this direction, and and you know I had lots of really interesting conversations with folks. That, that are really interested in, in saying, okay, what what do we need to do to, to help get this to the next step? How can we help uh, test or evaluate or validate? Or, there's definitely some excitement in moving forward. And, you know, there's still plenty of, you know, that's interesting. You you guys, let me know how that turns out for you. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's still plenty of that, but, which is fair, right? You know, the not, not everyone wants to be, right? <laughs> you know, first in line for for the brand new iPhone. That, that, that's that's fine. So I, I'm just excited that uh, there seems to be tangible progress towards, you know, having this be something that, that uh, you know, really becomes a part of, uh, of what we report in addition to the ID. Yeah, you know, Eric, when, when you were talking about that, I think you even started off with, you know, what the future holds for the profession. It just kind of caught my attention and was making me think, I don't know. I'm not sure anymore. I don't know that these things that you and I get excited about, right, that these things are the future of the profession. I think they're the hmm. future for some of us. And I think for some agencies, we're going to look forward and we'll see some excitement. And maybe in 50, 60, 80 years, maybe it becomes, you know, commonplace in the field. But I don't know. I think I've been around long enough in the field. And this isn't pessimism. It's just, I think, realism that the field's not ready for these sort of major changes and adoption. So even if you had validated this system, right, it's completely validated and shown to be awesome, it won't matter. You'll get one or two agencies, you know, maybe in the next week, maybe another couple more. I just... Even when we know that there is technology that's helpful, I mean, closed APHIS searches, case APHIS, you know, these kinds of things that you and I have been involved in in the past, we don't see this monumental shift in the field. And I think a lot of it, of course, has to do with, well, who's doing all the training? Well, either minimal training, in-house training, or some of the presenters here were trainers who we were just talking about earlier, and they're very much against these things. So it's not happening in the training environment. It's not happening necessarily in the culture. 
you hear about these conferences, but just like you said, someone might say, well, that's really interesting, but get back to me in 10 years after you've been, you know, up and down the court system. I don't know, just a thought that popped in my head. I don't know, what do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, when I said future, I didn't say near future. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Good point. No, I, I, it is going to be, uh, you know, relatively slow. But I was looking back. It was one of the presentations I gave uh, was about the accuracy of doing latent print searches, mm-hmm. you know, in NGI or with different vendor software, you know, based on some of the, the NIST data we talked about earlier in the year and some of the FBI data I think we've talked about the year before. And as part of my presentation, I decided to kind of go back because the, the idea being one of the things I was trying to suggest was you know, getting people to change what they're doing based on the data that is coming out. That can be a difficult thing to convince people to do. But if you look back in our field, there's there's never a point of, oh, that's that's the way we used to do it, right? That it has been a a solid walk of change since the very beginning. And, you know, it was looking at the, the FBI database, you know, starting in, is it, was it Leavenworth in Kansas? Uh, and then, you know, growing to, you know, a couple hundred cards a day coming in. And then by the 60s, it was like they had just this massive staff uh, that everyone basically had to spend, spend like tw- about 20 minutes per card classifying it, and getting it, uh, which is hundreds of hundreds of people working to to get all these cards filed and and then realizing, okay, we have to figure out a way to computerize and automate this. Uh, and then they did that in by the early 80s. You know, there was more you know computerization and automation on the 10 print side, and then we launched IAFIS in '99. And uh, on average, you had a one in three shot of hitting. Assuming that your known print was in the database, it hit a third of the time. And uh, you know now that average overall is up to about two thirds. But it's it's also leaps forward with stragglers, right? You know you still see so many agencies, you know, not fully up to speed on the latest processing techniques or you know, using APHIS systems that are 15 or years old or older. And you're like, what, like, what are you getting out of this? Uh, so, but that's the way it's always been. So I, I, I'm not really expecting anything different from that, but you know, those, the folks that are, are behind, you know, will eventually catch up. It's nothing that, you know, usually those examiners are doing anything wrong. It's just their agency or policies or, training or resources there's a lot of different factors that might go into that but uh you know it, it will it will move along forward and i'm just excited to see this little piece of it you know take a big uh, major jump forward sure and that and no doubt i mean that, and that's an exciting accomplishment uh for you and obviously your company as well another talk i saw was from alicia Caraqui. Uh, so she is one of the um researchers, statisticians with uh, CSAFE. What is CSAFE? Well, she's, who knows anymore? Uh, <laughs> we have discussed some other episodes, but just in case. We have. It's a center, it's supposed to be a center of, of uh, statistics for forensic science. Yes. It's supposed to be helping uh, the different forensic fields 
uh, advance forward with new technology, uh, especially in how statistical uh, research or data or evaluation can help uh, or tools can help move things forward. Right. Developing metrics, quantitatives, et cetera, to help move from what they perceive to particularly be subjective pattern evidence into more quantitative ways of expressing this evidence similar to DNA. So the uh, the talk she gave, I believe, is based on a paper that she recently published uh, about uh, missingness. Uh, so <laughs> the, the short version of that being, if you have an accuracy study, what what band what band did the song "Missing You"? Uh, I ain't missing you at all. That yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's it. <laughs> John Wait. Uh, that's who I. John Wait is it? And, and no, something to wait. Um, yeah, John Waite. Yeah, right. there we go. Okay. Yes, I'm missing. My brain didn't fail me. Good job, brain. Good job, brain. <laughs> uh, so the, the sad thing is it's knowing, remembering that has mean, meant that I've, there's something else important that I've forgotten in order to hold on to that fact. Uh, so um, anyway, the, the, the idea being that if you do an accuracy study like the black box one, what you often find is that not every participant finishes every sample or every comparison or every latent in, in the, uh, in the case. And uh, so what uh, her paper attempted to do was estimate a different accuracy rate, making different assumptions about how well examiners would do on the samples that they didn't do. <laughs> you can already see the problem that I'm going to have <laughs> with this. So she went through her thing, and, and by the end, I was a little kind of flabbergasted and a you know mouth open because uh, I believe she stated that you know this is kind of one way to approach this question, and you know it may not be the best way, or you know, there may be other ways to do this. And I'm thinking, well, why did you publish it? Why are you here talking about it if this might not even be the best way to approach it? But uh, I was very glad that Austin Hicklin and Joanne Viscaglia were in the audience. Because they they made some clarifications, like how, you know, one of the assumptions in uh, Alicia's paper and presentation is that, you know, the examiner will be going along, you know, all right, easy one, easy one, easy one, oh, hard one, all right, skipping that guy, all right, next one, all right, easy one, easy one, easy one, hard one, all right, skipping that one, so that, you know, the, the responses that they gave are only on the easy ones, and they then may have a higher error rate on the hard ones. Right. And and, and by the way, the, the two people you mentioned are authors of the paper that she's talking about. Just to, if, yes. if the audience doesn't know that, that's important. They're two of the four authors on the very paper she's discussing. Exactly. So they point out, well, that's not how that worked. Like, that's not how the study was designed. The study was designed where if you stopped and didn't do a sample, then you were done. You didn't get to keep going. You didn't get the next Everybody one. knows that. Who knows that study? <laughs> yes. Exactly. We've been talking about that for 12 friggin' years. Right. How do you not know that? Right. So, okay, <laughs> there may be some element of the one that they stopped on might have been hard. And that's why they stopped. But it, it was only be the one sample of the hundred that they looked at. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't affect everything. And it was clear from uh, the presentation that 
she made the incorrect assumption about how the uh, the study was designed. Yeah, and and also the study randomized the order in which you got you know your your samples, so it wasn't like yep. they were always delivered in the same sequence. And when nine out of ten examiners hit sample thirty seven, they stopped. I mean, there was yep. a randomness to this in which ones they got and the order that they got. So yeah, yeah I'm I, I, I'm with you. So anyway, that's the short version of that. Well, well, thank God we have that research. Thank, thank goodness. Not like we need other <laughs> things or have been waiting for other tools, like quality metrics or statistical models or other measurements of distortion. I, you'd think that CSAFE would be focused on that stuff instead, but very specific things we're asking for. Yes. Please make incorrect assumptions that try to show how we're more wrong than we. Right. Complex. Yeah. All right. Other stuff. Great to see uh, Greg Firmara. So if you guys don't know Greg, he works for NIST and is one of the key people uh, doing these these NIST accuracy studies. So, you know, again, we talked about the latent one that's uh, uh, from you know, earlier this year in an episode. But there's accuracy studies on on, you know, on face, on contactless fingerprint capture, on iris all sorts of different things uh, related to biometrics so that agencies can make informed decisions about uh you know which which vendors they want to go with and then once they they make that choice you know how to best use that uh, that system uh, effectively one of the things he kind of highlighted was these new he called them nutrition cards so Glenn, first off, he was very complimentary. It had a slide about about our podcast mm -hmm. and uh, or part of the slide showing how uh, information about the work that they're doing is getting out to the community and used our you know, our podcast as an example of that. Yes, I saw his talk in Holland. Oh, okay, good. And then they rolled out a new thing here, right in actually in the middle of the conference week, uh, called nutrition cards. And the idea is that uh, what he kind of said was that. The data in the reports on posted on the website can be a little difficult to understand and read and digest for uh, you know some of the folks that they're trying to send this information out to. So what they decided to do was kind of take inspiration from like the nutrition information on the back of a box of food mm -hmm. and highlight specific things, important bits of information. So if that for each vendor that participated in the study, they'd get this scorecard or nutrition summary, you know, of the most important data and how they compared to all the other vendors. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. We didn't talk about it at, in our last episode because they weren't out yet. Right. So if anyone's interested, you can go over to NIST, search for ELFT uh, for the latent ones and pull up that information. And uh, let's see, the last, actually, last thing I can think of is uh, we got a new fourth VP at the IAI, Heidi Eldridge. So congratulations to her. And overall, a amazing and exhausting week. Indeed. Yeah, I, I only saw part of uh, a workshop that I was in because I was co-teaching it, which was with Alice White. Uh, she was teaching distortion and complex distortion, particularly on what she calls tonal shifts or what we might think of as, you know, like a tonal reversal or color reversal and i love teaching with alice she's a she's a great instructor and her workshops yeah. are always kind of fun and exciting so it was it was nice to teach with her and i also again taught with mallory who i mentioned uh, previously 
And that was our first time teaching together on complex analyses. And what I liked about our workshop was we gave really concrete examples, even allow, um, we had sent out the, uh, the samples and the exercises to students ahead of time, like we sent it a week oh. in advance so they could come to the workshop with their laptop and their own digital images and work through them. Then we let them use an online quiz taker so they could input anonymously their answers. It was really kind of cool seeing the variation because these were complex samples. So there was this variability that we were expecting. And even when Mallory and I did it, we had done it independently. And I had chosen the samples expecting that Mallory and I would reach some different conclusions. And it was great because then we could then look at our documentation to understand why we reached different conclusions. And without that documentation, mm -hmm. you would have no idea why you were reaching different conclusions. So it was really helpful for students to see that that variability is normal in complex cases. Documentation helps you with conflict resolution. It helps you articulate yep. these differences and that this is not a personal thing or they're referring levels of competency, that they're different interpretations. It's normal. It highlights the subjectivity in the process, but documentation helps do it in a transparent way. That's the kind of stuff I like when it comes to if you have to criticize or look at someone else's results and compare them to yours, that's how I like going about it. And it was a really, I thought, very successful workshop. Students really seemed engaged in recognizing, oh, I'm more like Mallory, or I'm more like Glenn, or I'm more in the middle. And it was kind of interesting, you know, seeing that and students, again, recognizing, okay, this is a normal part of this, and, and documentation helps students to articulate it, especially in a non-threatening way. Mallory had a really nice little system for how to do conflict resolution as long as you have the documentation in a very non-threatening way. And I, I, I appreciated that perspective. That is so needed in our field. I, I mean, so, you know, we've worked to, we've worked together and used each other as verifiers yes. uh, on different cases over the years. And, and, you know, we've had to go through conflict resolution on occasion. Yeah. And, oh, and by the way, you're much more like Mallory. In fact, I, I mentioned that even <laughs> during the workshop that if I didn't know any better, I'd think that Eric marked that one up. That was kind of our little inside joke. And, and students who had seen, uh, you know, or listened to the podcast and knew that they, they, they got a kick out of that. But yeah, I mean, so you can imagine if you and I were to do this workshop, that it would be the same kind of thing. I mean, uh, you know, Mallory and I are, are basically indistinguishable from each other you know it's, it's put us in a lineup and it's you know first for, it's just it's just like you know mirror image but uh <laughs> you know in going through that process it was I, I it's it just seems so different from you know what i've experienced before right of being able to to discuss and to not have you know to know going in you're not gonna have anyone digging in their heels and you're not going to have any pushovers. Yep. And you're not going to have anyone go, all right, fine. We'll just go with what you say. Like the, all the things that you kind of, I'm sure some of you guys out there have, have you encountered that before. And, you know, but getting to a point where you can have it, this, this healthy discussion, a conflict resolution, where you're both seeking the most appropriate conclusion to report. Yeah. From a, a lab perspective, not a personal perspective, but from a lab, an organization or a company, whatever you're working in, that kind of perspective. And by the way, yes, this is what I can do in my own company, but there's no reason agencies couldn't do this as well. It's okay if you also 
can't necessarily reach an answer as long as you report both answers. At the end of it, you know, one of you or both of you could testify. And certainly in my company, I've issued reports where I said, this is what my conclusion was. This is what his or her conclusion was as a verifier. We weren't able to really resolve this. It comes down to how we're weighting features. Here's both the conclusions. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that absolutely says that there is one and only one answer. Uh, it, it's what answer you can defend and what answer you feel comfortable providing as your expert opinion. And again, that's something we kept seeing those earlier talks as, well, we get the right answer. The answer we come to is the right answer. Uh, really? No, that's your answer. And it might not even be that defensible. You might think it's defensible, and that's fine. But not everyone will agree with that. And that's that's why it was such a joy teaching with her, because she gets that perspective. That's great. And you too. I mean, you, you obviously do too. Now, we, that we can leave the egos out of it and recognize that, no, there's variability in how people interpret these things. Documentation is the key to unlocking why those differences exist. After you do it a few times, right, and, and you hear someone say, wait, how did you see that? Right. You kind of get used to it, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and we had a great example. We should see if, we, she, if she will come on, then maybe we could even go over a couple of these and have you even take a look. Yeah. And she had a really good example where she identified it, and I would, would have been either an inconclusive or probably strong I think I was strong support. And it came down to... The area that she was willing to go into, the center core, she was able to draw like six or seven features out of this area. And I had one red at best in that area. <laughs> one, right? And so if, if she was seeing 15 features in correspondence, sure, of course she's going to yep. ID it. If I'm only seeing seven or eight, yeah, of course I'm not going to ID it. I've got to have some other qualified conclusion. Documentation was clear. And, and you know... Such a huge part of that is the the confidence you gain from having the documentation of your analysis. Yes. Where you you look back and you can see, no, no, I really did see yes, these and mark exactly. these bef- ahead of time. Yeah. So you're not worried about uh, about working backwards and you know working from the known to the latent and and having that biasing effect. You can be you know confident because you have that documentation. Just another. Yes. Uh, you know, piece of why that's so important. And and that perspective was missing from multiple talks at the II about there's no need to document analysis to this step. It's just time waste. I mean, I, I saw that in, and heard that coming out of multiple presentations. And it, it just... Oh, it's... <laughs> well, we'll get into that in another episode. This one's already over long. Uh, because we have some some interviews we want to share with yes with folks. Becca, you know, we we gave her our our tricorder looking device to to go out amongst the people at the conference, and see you know if she could cajole some folks to uh, to to, to you know, answer a couple questions uh, on the show. So we're going to cut over to some of those now. You'll you'll hear some of the the background buzz and uh, you know get a little feel for for being at the conference and. Going all the way back to, you know, some of our very first episodes had that kind of, uh, had that feel. Back when, you know, we could just pull off to a corner <laughs> in the in the vendor hall and just, you know, kind of chat about different things with people and not have to worry about working or having a booth or all no, sorts of other things. None of that you know? anymore. Remember those days, Glenn? I do. I really do. 
uh, no, so it's, it's great that we got to continue that on in this kind of little different format. And so that, that's what we'll cut to next before we close out the show. And take it away, Rebecca Coutant. I am here in the exhibit hall. It is Tuesday morning, and I'm here with Natalie. Natalie, where are you from? Hi, I'm from Sweden, and I work at the National Forensic Center in Sweden as a fingerprint expert examiner. And I see this is your first time at the IAI. How long have you been in the field? I've been working as an examiner for eight years now, and yeah, it's my first time here, (laughs) yeah. I imagine it's hard to get a lot of people over from Sweden over to the States every year, but it's really exciting to get international perspectives here. What is something you've seen so far this week that really interested you? I've been at a couple of lectures from Mike Russell, I think his name was, and it was a really good lecture. It was uh, very interesting and it was very, how do you say, he made it very fun to be there and learn. So that was really good. And what was he lecturing on? The first part were about orientation of the fingerprint and the second lecture were about uh, hints on loops. Yeah. And are you looking forward to anything in particular for the rest of the week? Yeah, I have a couple of workshops with Alice White that I'm really looking forward to because I've just read a lot about her. <laughs> and it's going to be really fun to see what she has to teach me. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're going to have so much fun with Alice. Alice is a friend of the podcast and she makes learning very interesting. So I bet you have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Well, thank you for stopping by and thanks for letting me interview you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I am here in the vendor hall with Krishna. Krishna, can you tell me where you work? Uh, I currently work with Foster Freeman right now, and I'm based out in California and LA. And I believe last year you were here with a different kind of product. What else do you do? That's right. Well, we I have a side hustle because I believe that every woman should have a side hustle. And uh, I have a coffee roasting business in conjunction with my business partner, Johnny Mai, who also used to work in forensics as well. And uh, essentially, we are a company. Um, the company's called ID Coffee Co. And what we do uh, is we actually, from the, the sales from our sales of our coffee product, we actually go ahead and sponsor uh, students that want to go into um, in the career of forensics. That's very cool. You said you had a student here this year and you had one last year as well? Yes, that's correct. And we also, in fact, this is our third student that, that we're actually sponsoring. And so the student from last year, uh, she was from Cal State Long Beach. And uh, Jamie came in last year. She networked with people. And within eight months, she actually secured a position. And she did attest it to the fact of her actually network, networking with the IAI. Um, and so as a result of that, Johnny and I decided to uh, continue with it because we said, well, you know what? It actually works so um, we do have another student um, by the name of Alex and he just finished his forensics degree with Cal State Long Beach as well and he's out here networking with all sorts of people that's great I think we all know that in this field getting those first positions are really really difficult and network can be crucial so that's really neat and what do you do for Foster and Freeman now so I, my job title is, uh, is rather fancy. I'm a technical sales specialist. And essentially, um, my job role is to um, sell forensic products, uh, digital imaging systems, um, uh, different uh, light sources, uh, camera, well, yeah, well, our, our 
our latest equipment that we actually do have is a crime light auto. So it's all the crime lights that you that we ordinarily use out in the crime scene and um, that's actually conjoined with an SLR camera. So if you can imagine that you have an SLR camera and you have all your different light sources to detect crime and if they got married and had a baby, that's what we actually have. So it's like an all-in-one stop shop and essentially that's what I do. I go out and I connect with law enforcement um, agencies that have uh, crime laboratories and uh, do demonstrations and, and see if that's the equipment that they can actually use to, um, to help them with their investigations. Yeah, that's great. We have the crime lights at my own laboratory and I can imagine how nice it would be to have a camera already hooked up to that, not having to worry about getting that set up for yourself. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. All right. It is Wednesday morning. I'm here in the vendor hall. I'm here with David. David, where do you work? I work at the National Center for Audio and Video Forensics. Actually, I founded the company in 2001. All right. And what do you guys do there? Our job is to take evidence that comes in audio, video, and cell phone evidence and help explore it for the client and see how we can help them, how the evidence might even hurt them, and to help them prepare it for use in court. And do you guys contract all over the country? Yeah, we mostly have clients from the United States all around. Our, we have two offices, one in Fort Lauderdale and one in Los Angeles, but we occasionally get evidence from outside the country as well. And how might people find you if they're looking for your services? It shouldn't be hard. Uh, we have a website fully operational for contacting us. Again, it's the National Center for Audio and Video Forensics. It's ncavf.com. Cool. And have you seen anything that you really enjoyed so far at the conference? Definitely. It's really interesting to see the variety of different booths from fingerprints, but also footprints and blood spatter, things that might get you a little bit, you know, a little grosser than fingerprints and uh, you know gunshot analysis audio and video forensics which is my biggest interest of course specifically but when you learn from other areas it also helps you to improve yourself absolutely I think we can all take things from each other's disciplines and pull them all together to help each other and are you looking forward to anything in particular for the rest of the week well, I'm presenting tomorrow, which I'm nervous about, but also excited. I've done a lot of presenting. It's good to be nervous when you present because it gives you a little more energy. It gives you a chance to explore whoever comes in. They ask good questions and they might challenge you and they might ask questions you don't know the answers to. And that's OK. You just say, I don't know, and I'll get back to you. It, that's good advice for a spouse, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It sounds like you have some experience with that. <laughs> yes. Um, if you don't know, it's OK. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by and look forward to seeing you around. Thank you very much. I am here with Shelby. Shelby, can you tell me where you work? So I'm a student researcher at Duquesne University, and I am currently re researching forensic entomology. You said to me a little bit earlier that you were working on a research project. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. So what I'm looking at is uh, fentanyl in human flesh to determine if concentration has an effect on the growth of blowfly larvae. Oh, and are you finding, are there any results you can share with me yet? What are you finding so far? So there's not much I can share with you yet just because um, my research is still in its infantile stages. Um, but what I have found is that it does have an effect um, and I'll be sure to share that with you later. 
Do you have a timeline? I know those can be really hard to predict, but where, you know, where are you in the stages? <laughs> so I'll be able to share the results of my research by the end of uh, this school year. I should have my research completed by the spring of 2024. Great. That's really cool. Congratulations. Have you seen anything this week so far that has really interested you? Any cool presentations, lectures, workshops? I've seen a lot of things here. All I can say is that IAI has put on a really good show this year, um, and I am really happy to be here. That's great. Anything you're looking forward to uh, for the rest of the week? Just networking, meeting all these awesome people here, um, and making really good connections. Great. Uh, Well, thank you for stopping by, and I look forward to seeing your research soon. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. I am here with Leggy. Leggy, where do you work? I work for the Polk County Sheriff's Office in Winter Haven, Florida. Right. And what do you do for them? I'm a forensic analyst. Our full title is Forensic Latent Print Analyst 2. So I hear you have a side hustle. Why don't you tell me about your little side hustle? I have multiple side hustles. Um, I'm also a contributing faculty member with Walden University, uh, which is an online program for graduate degrees and undergraduate. I teach in the forensic psychology program uh, multiple courses. I also have authored a few different books. Um, They're all available on Amazon, but also through Writers Republic, where I've just published my most recent book. And what are the books called? Uh, There's one book called So You Want to Be a CSI. It's a forensic textbook that has a virtual component where students can walk through a crime scene and uh, learn how to gather evidence, how to speak to the detective or to a witness, how to photograph a shoe print, and how to collect different items of evidence like a bullet or how to document a bullet hole in a wall. Um, I also have Uh, Someday My Prince Will Come. It's an activity book with crossword puzzles, word finds, a few other types of deciphering puzzles, comparison exercises, and some general information about fingerprints from the forensic perspective. And my most recent book is is called Dear Dream Maker. And it's uh, more of a catalog or journal of dreams that I've had over the years that have been very detailed. Some sketches included, and it's a planned series of books that I'll be doing until I stop dreaming. (laughs) Very nice. And you just gave me a copy of the Someday My Prince Will Come. I personally love word puzzles and games, so I'm looking forward to delving into that on my plane ride back, so that'll be fun. Um, Have you seen anything that really piqued your interest so far this week? Um, I've had a lot of interaction with the different vendors as well as some of the speakers and on that topic that I was really engaged with, which is vicarious trauma and wellness for the the civilian personnel. And uh, so I think that's very important that, that we stay on that relevant topic. As far as the vending stations, I've gotten to know a few of the different vendors I've been communicating with either by uh, email or occasionally by phone. And... A lot of the products are, they're exciting to learn about, but I'm not sure that my agency will buy in right away. So I'm, I'm still learning about who I want to uh, try to find out more, more uh, different things on the different products. So I'm, I'm still growing, still learning. I think that's always our problem. We come to these, we see really cool products and we go back to the agency and we talk all about them. And the agency's like, mm, money, 
like right money money's an issue but it's been it's been nice to catch up with friends um the last day i always like the banquet at the end just for the dress up a little bit and see some of the uh the new officers as they get installed great well thanks for stopping by thank you very much i appreciate all that you've done and shared with me while i've been here thank you I am here with Daniel. Daniel, you also go by another name that I don't want to butcher, so would you like to say that? Uh, in Portuguese, uh, it will be Carvalho. So Portuguese, so that leads me to my next question. Where are you from? I'm from Brazil. I'm a fingerprint expert there. And where do you work? At the capital, Brasilia. Okay. and. You're over here. I see it's your first time and also that you're a speaker. So you were telling me you did a poster presentation. What was that on? I'm trying to deal with nanoparticles. So I bring a poster that brings us information about carbon dots and fingerprint development. Okay. And are you looking to publish anything on that? Uh, it's possible. It's a working on progress. But now I'm setting the parts and reading a lot. Maybe it will be a kind of review article. And that's it. For a while, will be this. Great. And when you get that done, you send it on over to that FIGS email, and I'll be sure to include it in the next mailing list. Thank you. So have you seen anything you really enjoyed yet this week? Yeah, most everything. <laughs> It's really good because we don't have this size of event in my country. So I'm loving. It's really good. That's great. And are you looking forward to anything for the rest of the week? Yeah. Every day I have to choose. And it's really hard for me because I love everything here. So, <laughs> And we have lots and lots of researching progress that I want I to see. Uh, I have just bubbled in one that I'm doing the same in my country. Exactly the same with friends and colleagues for work. So every day I love this more. That's great. That's what I love about these conferences is the networking and meeting new people who might be doing the same thing and you can build on each other's research. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Bye. I'm here with Joe. Joe, where do you work? I work at the NYPD Police Laboratory. And I see that you are a speaker, and you said that you did a poster presentation. What was your poster presentation on? It was on adequate CSI staffing. It was more on response. How many CSIs should we be leaving the door with? How many should we be staffing our scenes with? And it's about offense type. It's about how many should we go to at a homicide if we have two or three scenes, if it's a big scene, if it's a small scene. Depends on how many tasks we're doing. Uh, so are there any takeaways that you found? It was extremely validating that a lot of CSIs came up and said, yes, thank you, this is what we've needed, so that's nice. I've been there before, I was a CSI, so seeing that response and knowing that it's, it's going somewhere and it's doing something really does help. But a lot of the big takeaways was, yes, we do need more than one CSI at a homicide, shocker, but that's important. That's the first time we've had numbers to back up what we've all kind of known as a gut feeling. That's great. Do you plan on publishing this at all? It's actually already published in the journal Forensic Identification. I believe it was the second issue of this year. Oh, that's great. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for stopping by. Thank you so much. I am here with good friend of the show, Bree Bree Love. Bree, how you doing? How's this year going? 
I'm doing great. We're coming to the end of the exhibit hall time and we're transitioning out of that, ready for the rest of the week. It's going really well. And remind listeners what company you are with. I am with Uncover Forensics, a forensic training company. All right. And since last we talked, I think you've been doing a little bit of expansion. So how's that going? Do you have any new courses you're offering? What's going on with your company? Oh, we have. It's been an amazing year. We have 10 instructors now. And actually, at the early part of August, I just interviewed more. So we're probably going to have 15 or 16 instructors coming up here. Uh, We're offering courses in crime scene topics, friction ridge topics. I'm also bringing on our very first firearms instructors, also a toxicology instructor. So we're expanding our subjects as well as our course catalog. We have four classes running right now in our signature online self-paced format, which the self-paced is great because you don't have to set a certain schedule to take classes. Just when you're ready, you register, and then you can watch lecture videos, pause, go do casework, come back, do some more of the class. But we have eight classes coming out between now and the end of the calendar year so eight more and then more even next year with all the new hires so it's really great that's great I'm really looking forward to seeing all those classes so what else are you looking forward to for the rest of the week now that we're off vendor hall duty in a couple of hours (laughs) I am actually really looking forward to going to lectures. I am still a Friction Ridge examiner. I love my fingerprint stuff. And I miss getting to actually see all the lectures and get some of that valuable training. Most of it's I'm going to put my examiner hat on now and go get nerd out on all of the cool stuff I can learn. I, too, am very much looking forward to that part of the rest of the conference. All right. Well, thank you for doing a little interview. And it's, as always, awesome having a booth right next to you. (laughs) Awesome to see you, too. All right. Thanks again, Becca, for for talking to all those people. So to close out the show, thanks, everyone, for listening again. Thank you for 10 years of this. It's just been amazing. Before we close out the show, Glenn, uh, any classes coming up you want to talk about? There is training in my old stomping grounds in the Detroit area. That is going to be October 16th through the 20th, 2023. That's the Advanced Ace V class I teach. It's a five-day class. Uh, That is in suburb of Detroit. And so if you come out, I'm happy to kind of show you around. And again, we'll try try not to get you shot. We'll take you some fun places. And, uh, no, it's, it's, it's much better these Don't days. Don't make any promises here, Glenn. Much better, yes. And then I'm also teaching with Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom, a courtroom testimony class that it will be in Massachusetts area. That's November 6th through the 8th. And then finally, for our Canadian listeners, there is a class I'm teaching with John Black up in Canada. Understanding Exclusion and Sufficiency Decisions, and that is in the B.C. area, British Columbia, and that will be January 22nd through the 25th up there. And if you're interested in those, you can go to ronsmithandassociates.com or just email me and I can sort of direct you to the appropriate links. All right. Well, if you have any questions or uh, comments or anything else to share from the conference, uh, you can email us. Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. You can also go over to our website, DoubleLoopPodcast.com. We've got some you know, podcast merchandise. We'll have some new merchandise up available soon after we get the, our website switched over. The, the comments and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not, not necessarily anyone that they work for. All right, and with that, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you guys for 10 years of this, 10, over 10 years now. Uh, it's just been fantastic and, and you know, 
definitely wouldn't be here if we didn't have people listening. Uh, so thank you all so much and uh, talk to you guys next time. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thanks for your continued support. Good job, Brain. Good job. <laughs>